This is Words First, talking text in opera. I'm Katora Stickan. I'm excited to share my conversation with Michael Corey with you today. Michael has been in the business of writing lyrics and libretti for quite some time, and his work speaks for itself. On the musical theater side, he's known for works such as Grey Gardens and War Paint. On the opera side, he's known for Harvey Milk and The Grapes of Wrath. He writes powerful stories and speaks powerfully about them. I learned as much about the business side of writing during this interview as I did about Michael's artistic voice, and I am so glad he let me pick his brain. Take a listen. Michael, welcome to Words First. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. You seem to have your feet solidly in both camps. I see a lot of musicals on your resume and also a lot of opera. How do you see your job differently when you are under the heading of lyricist versus librettist? Ah, well, uh, this is a career that evolved through no conscious decisions of my own. <laughs> uh, and uh, I mean, I was, I was in journalism. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I, I began in music performance harpsichord of all things harpsichord wow harpsichord. i said this will never do <laughs> um i was playing a trio with uh, two recorder players noodling in my ear some early music thing you know and i never liked early music um <laughs> and uh, i said you know what forget this and i came to new york to uh, get into journalism and uh this at that time nyu had the only uh, undergrad journalism program along with BU. I promptly got a, vo- a job opening the mail at the Village Voice. Great. I became a, uh, I worked my way up to writing little articles and assistant editing. I was covering gay rights, various things like that. Uh, this was just like five years after Stonewall. Mm-hmm. And it was an amazing time uh, because uh, the Village Voice basically took credit for Stonewall. Um, right. At that at that time, they were in Sheridan Square. Uh-huh. They looked out their window, and this thing started. Fred McDara, the photographer, went down. He's the one who took all the famous pictures. Right. And, and uh, got locked in the bar with the cops. You know, it was the reversal thing. The cops didn't lock them protesters in there was the protesters left the cops in and threw Molotov cocktails into the bar um and uh, so the voice was would cover covered it more than anyone else in the entire country or world because they used to call it in quotes our little riot and look what's happened to our little riot we're so proud look how it's grown yes into a movement so that was a wonderful time um and uh then I became an editor of my own Manhattan Weekly paper. I was only like 21. I had three editions to put out every week for the West Side, Chelsea, and um, the East Side. And uh, isn't it great to be that age and 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 truly not have any idea how? I, I think I feel like if we start those things when we're older, we just we know too much. 
to be that well, daring. It's true. It's, I, I really never knew what, exactly what I wanted to do. I just wanted to have a good time doing it. And, and I fell into this thing. And suddenly, you know, there was New York City was going bankrupt, which was the greatest time because places like CBGB's and the Mud Club were opening up and right. then Studio 54. It was all, and I had a press pass, could get into everywhere and go breezing in. After five years of doing this, uh, you know, doing a, a community newspaper in the middle of Manhattan, I was totally burnt out and decided I was going to go into writing music. Uh-huh. Um, I made a, a, a deal with my uh, lover who I've been together with for 40 years. Congratulations. Wow. Yes, we finally got married. I didn't want to, but we finally did. And I decided I enjoyed it. But um, <laughs> Anyway, I, I made a deal, you know, because uh, I was at 21. I was running these newspapers and making a decent living and having a big staff. And he was uh, running nonprofit dance okay. uh, and firing. They were firing each other uh, every other week so that they could go collect unemployment and then come back to work. That's how it worked. Um, so um, I said, I supported you. Now you're going to support me for five years until I break into this business. And it took longer than five years, let me tell you. But um, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was writing music and there was nobody to fill in the words. Um, and I knew how to deal with words from journalism, headlines. And uh-huh. I realized writing headlines is not that much different than writing lyrics. Interesting. You know, every lyric has to have a song hook to kind of organize the, the whole thing. And when I caught on to that, and I like writing about characters, mm-hmm. I began writing lyrics. And then in a few years, I started getting these shows done. And then I was working on a show at Playwrights Horizons with uh, Stuart Wallace and uh, Richard Foreman. It was a crazy thing called Where's Dick? Uh-huh. And it was, it was all sung. That was just how it happened to work. But we thought it was a musical. And somebody said, this isn't a musical. This is an opera the Houston Grand Opera became interested. And I said, okay, so I'm an opera librettist, fine. <laughs> um, and it just happened. I certainly never said, I liked operas, but uh, I certainly never set out to ever think I'd be writing them. I don't think anyone does. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of librettists at this point, and I really think there are very few people out there. And it's the same, I'm an opera director, but right. I certainly didn't start out thinking this was going to be a thing I did. I think well, opera... You find that you have an affinity for it somehow, or right. that the work seems to somehow fit. Yes. And uh, opera actually is a great... It's a great thing if you can bounce back and forth, actually, right. because opera actually gives you, at that time, opera wasn't giving that many commissions, but you were able to get grants at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was still a lot of grant money for the arts until Jesse Helms got his hands in it. So we were able to get grants, and I would be able to write operas and make a living while I was also working on musicals. The thing about operas was when you were writing them, if they gave you a commission, as you know, they have to hire their singers, directors, and get things in productions three to four years in advance. Yes. So they kind of have to commit um, whether they like it or not. And they usually don't like it and they worry until opening night when if it's good, then they take credit for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if it's not, then I knew I shouldn't have commissioned this. But um, they have to do it anyway. Whereas the theater waits to the last possible moment to make a commitment pays everybody except the writers uh-huh. for doing readings and workshops. And so you can't make a living there. Right. 
So I kind of learned how to go back and forth. It also suited my temperament in that whenever I was writing something, I wished I was in the other medium. Mm-hmm. And so I always had projects started in both. And they each come with really a different set of characters, rules. Um, and I learned since I was a musician from those years ago playing harpsichord and I knew all that stuff. I understood all about the voice, vocal demands, um, and really how to, what opera singers needed. It was also a time when, you know, young American opera singers had uh, always been criticized Mm -hmm. for not being good actors, whereas I felt I was working with some of the best actors I ever worked with. People, you know, young singers at that time, like Lauren Flanagan, who were just put everything into it. And uh, Joyce, Joyce Castle, all kinds yeah. of Robert Orth, all kinds of oh, great people. Bob Orth. Terrific, yeah. terrific actors. And I really felt that it was no different in that sense in building a role uh, as you do in the theater, that as a librettist, I couldn't just show up for the last preview right. and fix the supertitles and then watch it. Um, I had to be there for the whole rehearsal process. And I actually got that all written into my contracts because that was not usual. Uh It was not usual to get billing, but I wanted the same billing that I got in theater. Sure. Uh, And I wanted to be in the audition process, which freaked them out. Because we don't let the writer pick what singers were doing. (laughs) But I wanted singers who could act. Um, And once we had them, going to rehearsals every day, I was interested in hearing their comments and I rewrote for them. Yeah. Um, and that was a skill that I think a lot of opera librettists could work on, mm-hmm. which is working on lyrics to pre-existing music. You know, because sometimes you would know as a director, gee, if we could only get rid of this scene in the middle and go from A to C, mm-hmm. this whole act would move so much faster if we could skip B. But the parts are already written. The whole thing is orchestrated. How are we going to make it? Well, there's usually a way to do that. You can figure out, you know, how to get from there to there. You find a new way and you band-aid it, but it can't sound like a band-aid. Right. So you have to write words to the music that do a completely new thing. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of librettists do not know how to do. They're writing words first in a vacuum and they're not conscious of how music works, what composers need and what singers need. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, I find composers, I'll say, you probably want me to write you know, straight text. And they say, well, actually, no. I really like the fact that you know how to write lyrics for songs. And I want more melody in my score this time. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that you, but I said, you don't want me to use hooks. Yes, I love hooks. Um, and they don't love them that much, but they think <laughs> they love them, these compo- opera composers. So, but I do find that it's useful to use song structure from theater in opera in a basic sense, uh-huh. um, in that, you know, the basic theme of uh, theme and recapitulation. Audiences want to hear something more than once. Yeah. Singers want to sing something more than once. In, uh, in musical theater, you have song structures like, a, B, A, B, C, B, or verse, chorus. All pop music is basically written in verse, chorus form. Right. In opera, you don't want that many. Um, sometimes you want 
AA or ABA. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need it because the lines are longer. You know, you think of a lot of your famous arias or you think of uh, contemporary operas like Nixon in China, mm-hmm. um, the way hooks and ideas come back. It's satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, news has a kind of mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you don't do that, I find the audience has to listen much, much harder and read the whole opera. Um, if you can free them from the super title so they kind of get it from the language, I think they enjoy it more. It's less exhausting. Right. And it doesn't sound like a whole opera of recitative. Right. That's that's what I'm glad I had all that theatrical experience because I can bring something to both. And I'm not embarrassed. You know, a lot of composers uh, poo-pooed some of the work I was doing uh-huh. because I worked with some of the more melodic composers like Ricky Gordon and Stuart Wallace and right. people like that. Um, and, uh, well, that's okay if you like that kind of thing. <laughs> but I, I'm writing a 12-tonal thing. And, I, and some very great composers I know who tell me things like, oh, I'm not going to write an opera like the way you write an opera. I'm going to write it for score first. And I said, oh, you're not going to do a piano vocal. No, no, I'm writing it directly for orchestra. And we're going to have an orchestra workshop first. And I won't tell you the names of some of these famous composers <laughs> or what happened to their workshops. But they did not get out of workshop, those operas. Of course. Because you have to work in a fluid way in the opera. It is theater. It was, it was musical theater before there was such a thing as musical theater. That's right. You have, you have to respond to the audience. You have to respond to the moment. And you have to look at it in context. Uh-huh. What you thought was brilliant might be a big bore. And then who was it that, 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 that I think it was uh, Diana, Diana Vreeland, the great fashion editor, uh-huh. always said, when you get dressed to go out, always take off one piece of jewelry. That's how I feel about libretto writing. Love that. Uh, yeah. You know, you think it's all gems, mm-hmm. take one off. Mm-hmm. They get it much faster than you think they do. Yeah. I, I love that, um, I, uh, going back uh, just a little bit, I, I love that melody is actually, I feel like it's making a comeback in the pieces that we're seeing. I, I, I think we went through that period where opera was supposed to be something, it, it was it was trying to divorce itself from musical theater in a very distinct way. And, and I think now we're realizing that it's all theater and, and there's much more uh, similarity within it than there is difference. I think you're right. We had a lot. We, it got. It grew very academic for a while. It did. Yes. Some very great composers, you know, who had, who who thought that writing opera was a, a reward system. Yes. First, you win your Grammar Prize for your string quartet. Then you write your clarinet concerto, and finally, when you're 80 and have no theater and stage experience, you graduate to your big opera commission. <laughs> right. And you do something very serious based on the Bible. Uh, in 12 tones and everyone goes to sleep and I think that was jolted out of that whole academic milieu by the avant-gardists you know Robert Wilson working with Philip Glass um, Meredith Monk all those people bringing the energy of downtown work minimalism was actually far more theatrical Mm -hmm. and that I think that 
actually had a, in a, an odd way that minimal opera music brought melody back. Right. It opened the way. Let's talk a little bit about some of your work. I, I actually want to start with Ricky Ian Gordon, since uh, since you have some new work coming out soon together. Can you, yeah. can you go back a little bit, though, with him and tell me how Grapes of Wrath came to be and what it was like adapting Steinbeck? Well, um, Ricky and I went away back. We had we met. We actually lived one block apart. Since we lived so close to each other, it was we said, you know, this would be easy to collaborate. We could wake up, have our coffee, and do some work and write an opera. Um, but we never found the right project. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to meet at the corner bodega buying milk. Mm. One day at the corner bodega, he said, "I had an idea." These people came to me and said, "Do you want to write the grapes of wrath?" And I said, keep thinking. That's a thing. <laughs> um, he says, no, no, reread it. Reread it. Have you read it? Yeah, I read it in high school. Well, reread it again. And I said, that's insane. You know, uh, uh, to try and do a 400-page book um, in an opera, when opera attenuates everything. Yeah. Then I read it. And I realized that Steinbeck wrote it in three acts. Uh, a kind of biblical, the uh, the exodus from Oklahoma, mm. uh, the uh, exile in the desert, and finally the promised land that didn't live up to its promise in California. Mm-hmm. And I just immediately saw it as three units. And then there are, the book alternates a journalistic aspect with narrative. Steinbeck writes about the topography and weather mm-hmm. of the state in he writes about the automobile industry he writes about he's trying to identify the villain of the Mm -hmm. piece and a faceless villain that's basically a capitalist system run amok and so he comments on it uh in an authorial voice on every other chapter then gets back to the family and i said you know nobody else has used those chapters uh they didn't use it in the movie Mm -hmm. they didn't use it in the steppenwolf they just left out that whole thing i said opera has a chorus. You could, I could use them kind of as a Greek chorus and dramatize those scenes and actually put our main characters into them. Mm. So that was the initial concept. I presented them to that, and they said, "Well, what? That's that. That would be interesting. Um, but what if you did it over two nights instead, a two-night opera?" And I said, "Well, that would leave the family in a broken." down trunk in the middle of the Mojave Desert at the end of night one, and no one would come back for night two. Um, I said, better we should go back to the epic form of opera, three acts with two intermission, Mm. and let me work on it so that no one will leave after act two. That was my goal. People like to leave an act early so they can get their car out of the parking lot before the line. That's right. Or they can have to fill in some coffee and dessert. Uh, their reward for watching a boring contemporary opera. I was determined that they were not going to leave after Act Two, that I would do something so disturbing at the end of Act Two that they didn't feel they had had the experience of the opera. They couldn't leave yet. Mm. So I took some liberties with the book. And for that, I was chewing my fingernails because the Steinbeck estate had approval over it. What had happened, though, is that many, many composers over the years, famous composers, had approached the Steinbeck estate to write Grapes of Wrath as an opera. And Steinbeck left most of the control of his work to his family. 
mm-hmm. but he left the control of Grapes of Wrath to his second wife. Mm. So there were children from the first wife versus his second wife. And she was rejecting everybody until she heard Ricky Gordon's music. And she said, this is the sound of the Grapes of Wrath. Wow. They get the commission. Um, and I think that's why they came to me, uh, Ricky, because because I had the theater experience and they knew they wanted to, to evoke Americana. Mm-hmm. And, uh, even though I had kind of made a reputation for myself as a troublemaker, <laughs> they, were, they were willing to brook that uh, for the theatrical experience. And uh, that really paid off in that opera. Uh, and what I did was I, I adjusted where some certain events happened and I had a, a big drowning scene at the end of act two. Mm-hmm. The brother Noah, which was expanded from just a paragraph in um, the book to a big abstract thing, and I knew the Steinbeck estate would hate it. Mm. By that time, the second wife had passed away, mm-hmm. and there was a, a, a custody fight going over for who owned the rights to Grapes of Wrath. And they had like 12 months to approve the libretto, and they were so busy in court that they missed their deadline. So all of my changes sailed through. Um, and uh, I would have been in big trouble, yeah. but sailed through. And then, as it happens, when they came to it, they liked them. But I, I guarantee you, they would not have liked them had they read them on a page. Um, <laughs> that's luck, man. That's serious. Right? Luck. It was. It was luck. I mean, unfortunately, when you do adaptations, sometimes that is a proviso that comes with it. The estate wants approval. Right. Um, and that's been a, a problem for me. So mm-hmm. It's also in why I sometimes just want to do original works because I don't want somebody breathing over my shoulder and telling me how to write it. I, I have a collaborator. That's who I listen to. I have right. a director. Right. Those are the people I'm interested in hearing from. Right. And when the time comes, I'm very interested in the actors. Anyway, so Grapes of Wrath came around. Uh, they, when they made a sign a contract mm-hmm. that and you get it done in three hours. I said, yeah. I mean, if we do first act uh, an hour, second act 55, third act an hour and five, it's three hours, and we, we can do it shorter than that. Um, we came in with four hours of music, uh-huh. and then it turned out that they meant three hours, including two 20-minute intermissions, <laughs> and they hadn't bothered to tell me that. Right. So that means they wanted us to cut an hour and 40 minutes. Um, and all hell broke loose yeah. um, because uh, they knew that it was going to have to go into serious overtime yeah. uh, and that a lot of money in the big union house and the orchestra was big. So we almost didn't open. Um, we did cut it to as much as we could, but we couldn't get it less than what I promised three hours of music, mm-hmm. not including 220. So it ran 340. Mm-hmm. Um, with the two intermissions, and they had to get an angel to underwrite the overtime. Right. You know, it was a big success, but it didn't get done a lot past the initial commissioning companies because it was expensive. Sure. And it went into overtime. And uh, we decided uh, when St. Louis asked us to take a new look at it. We had done a concert version where we, uh, at Carnegie Hall, where we found a place to have an intermission. Uh, Jane Fonda narrated a a concert version, which was a mixture of theater and opera stars. It was an all-star cast, it was a lot of fun. 
but we left out a lot. We did, you know, highlights with narration by Jane Fonda, who felt very partial towards it because of her father's starring role in the movie. Um, and I found a place for an intermission uh, in a two-act format. And then we said, you know what? Forget your theory about the exodus and the exile and the forget, just look at it this way. Can we do the opera? And you can't just cut. Uh, we did cut, but we had to rewrite new yes. scenes um, and new material. Uh, and I had to do a lot of rewriting to existing music. And we did manage to do this two act version that opened in St. Louis and was quite, quite wonderful. And they get, did it again in Detroit. And it was all lined up to be done in a few more places when COVID hit. Um, but it was very interesting to go back to it. Mm -hmm. And then St. Louis asked us to do the same thing with the opera Harvey Milk that I had written with Stuart Op Wallace, right. also in three acts. Right. Part of my reason for loving opera was the kind of bringing new, new reasons to examine a three-act format. I think that it's so intense for an audience to take in all of this music. Yeah. You know, uh, the old musicals like My Fair Lady, South Pacific, those acts used to run an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. Now, nowadays you write musicals with the first act of an hour, an hour and five. And opera composers and librettists who do that are really asking an audience to work. Yes. Um, to understand everything through music. And I just felt three acts was less to con content to take in. Um, and you can structure it so, you know how a musical, uh, the energy of a musical is accrued through songs, then it talks, but it keeps going up like a zigzag, like an electrocardiogram, I mm -hmm. think is how it looks. Um, and this accrued energy, if you do it right, gives the audience a high. Mm -hmm. uh, and they get into the rhythm of this piece um, and it's irresistible to them uh, until you kind of leave them at a suspense point at the end of act one. Whereas opera, I think, grows, grows, grows. It's like going up the steep part of a roller coaster and then boom, and that's the end of act, the act. Uh -huh. uh, it's all building to that moment. All the threads are coming together musically and dramatically. And the music is just growing more and more intense. If you do that for 50 minutes, it's great. Mm -hmm. If you, that's what, you know, that's what the old operas did. That's what Porgy and Bess was, was structured like before they started taking out the intermissions. Right. It's continuous and it's, a, it's, it's thrilling. And then you get a chance to talk about it in between. But to sit for two acts combined or without an intermission, as they so often do now, or write long acts is asking a lot. So that's what I uh, was reacting to. And I love the difference that you could write shorter, more intense acts for opera than you could for musicals. Mm -hmm. Well, I think those days are gone. <laughs> um, uh, you can do pull all the tricks out of your hat that you want to to make people stay after act two. They don't want to. They want to go home. Everybody's working 15 jobs. Um, they're tired, they want to go, but they don't want, they love to get out quicker. Right. And there's less money, the ensembles are smaller, the orchestras are, you know, ever since the, uh, the collapse of the economy, opera kind of uh, 
lost its uh, trust fund. Yeah, it took and, a hit. Uh, right, yes, it took a big hit. Actually, Bernie Madoff had invested a lot of company for opera companies. Some opera companies lost their endowment through Bernie and Adolf. I don't know if that's widely known. So uh, I'm learning now to write shorter for opera as sure. well. And uh, you just adjust what you do. It's more deconstructed. It's less epic. I love the epic, but I think we've seen enough new work that we don't have to have epic just because it's opera now. Sure. And, and I think that though a lot of the major companies used to have black boxes, which they all lost, second stages. Mm. We now have all these wonderful new companies like in Brooklyn and all over the place that are doing interesting new work, diverse work, uh, work from new voices, and they're getting an audience. Yeah. Um, and things have changed with the old blue hair audiences. <laughs> the, the, the subscriber audiences are not there anymore. That's right. Um, <clears throat> So basically, the opera companies are much more open to new works because people are subscribing to opera seasons because there's a story. Well, opera is now competing with you know streaming and uh, cable television and uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu. Um, so story, story, story has really come back in a significant way in opera. And academia and intellectual and the, uh, the old ability of, of opera audiences to kind of treat the drama as secondary and the music as first. Mm. I don't see that. I don't see that anymore. Yeah. I see audiences responding to them as stories yes. that happen to be sung. Yes. Um, and they love the passion and they love the, ex what opera singers can, can do. They can focus all their acting into the voice yes. and put it out there in, in a way that very few other actors really can do. And so we love that. Speaking of um, both adaptation and story, um, can you tell me a little bit about The Garden of the Finzi Contini's, um, which is another adaptation that you're doing with Ricky and Gordon? Was this adaptation taken directly from the Bassani novel or did the film influence your storytelling at all with this? Um, we began directly from the uh, Bassani novel, and it's much closer to the Bassani novel than it is to the film. Uh -huh. Bassani didn't like some of the things that De Sica did in the film. Mm -hmm. He wanted it understated, the eventuality that would happen to the characters in this story, which was that Hitler and Mussolini formed a pact, and they began deporting these Jews and sending them, a lot of them, from northern Italy. It was a direct route to Auschwitz. Uh -huh. And he did not want that underlined because when he wrote the book, people knew that. He only had to allude to it. Now nobody doesn't even know that Mussolini was an ally of Hitler and that there was an axis and that they, and Jews got sent to concentration camps and, and political dissidents from Italy got, who disagreed with Mussolini got sent to concentration camps. They don't even know that anymore. Yeah, right. What? Italy? What are you talking about? So um, while honoring Bassani's vision of understatement, mm -hmm. I felt we had to go a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, into where, uh, into, into saying what happened to these people. Also, as we were working on it, you know, uh, along comes this whole anti-immigrant movement and the idea of building walls mm -hmm. and walling out people we don't like and walling ourselves into an insular garden 
where we see only what we want to see. It's a it's a lovely story about self deception. Right. You know the uh, this very noble family of practically entirely assimilated Jews. They were so they had been there for so many years. Uh, landowners, wealthy landowners, uh, renting farm out farmland out to uh, tenant farmers. They practically thought they were Christian. Um, and uh, this particular family, the Fincy Contini's, looked down their nose at the uh, the middle of the road Jews. Right. You know, they would build the temple, but they would only go once in a while. Um, and they would drive to temple when everyone else had to walk. Mm. Uh, and they had this fantastic estate that nobody could ever get into. And it was walled, walled off from the rest of the world. And what was happening was that the, the world was creeping up to the walls um, and uh, that they thought were impregnable that were not. Mm-hmm. So without meaning to, we found another work that seemed highly to speak to our times. Right. Um, and uh, the same thing had happened with Grapes of Wrath when we began it. We didn't know there was going to be this exodus from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know what this horrible reaction would be. You know, when it, when it premiered in Minnesota, some man found me. I mean, I did things in Grapes of Wrath that I mentioned that were not in the book. Sure. Like there was a chorus of um, women from Mexico mm-hmm. who were um, picking beans. And we gave them a Spanish morning prayer to sing. Mm-hmm. I just, I didn't want to rub it in. I just wanted to say these were Mexican migrant workers. But people got it. Mm-hmm. And so after the opera, this six-foot Republican man came up to me crying. He said, I'm a Republican, but I get it now. The Joes were just like the Mexicans. They just wanted to get a job and feed their families. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel like opera should be political in that way? I think that every work should connect to its audience. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that uh, too often people tackle the, the politics of our time, very important issues, head on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, I'm going to write an opera uh, about white privilege, or I'm going to write an opera about this. And then, as well as intention does it is, if it's that blatant, an audience feels lectured. Right. Um, right. So you have to sneak up on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is I've I've always wanted political content in my work, and they almost all have it. That comes from my days as journalism and working for the Village Voice mm-hmm. um, and working for Change. But I'm I know that you have to sneak up on them, and so if I wanted to write about you know. The turn of the, of this century to the 2000s and what was going on i wrote about the 1930s uh-huh. and people came in thinking we're seeing a historical thing and only part way through this oh my god this is about us today mm-hmm. it's a stealth opera um <laughs> the fancy continues as another stealth opera uh-huh. they think they're seeing um a story set in another time and it's going to hurt them yeah. where they live. And that's what I want. So, yes, I do believe that politics should be. And I believe that everything we do must relate to the time we live in.
you know, and then there are operas that are people who are doing a lot of operas uh, based on uh, the experience of veterans, uh, returning Iraqi soldiers, things like this. Um, sometimes they're great, but I think people go in very warily. Mm-hmm. And if they if they instead said it at the Franco-Prussian War, but made it about the Iraqi soldiers, I think that you would you'd have a, a better chance of actually getting people off guard, catching uh-huh. them off guard, and really hitting them where it affects them. Right. That makes sense. You mentioned Stuart Wallace. I want to actually talk a little bit about your, uh, your collaboration with Stuart Wallace. Um, speaking of uh, some inherently political uh, work, this is a relationship that produced operas such as Harvey Milk, uh, Kabbalah, Hopper's Wife, Where's Dick. All of these are original, is that correct? They were all original, yes. Uh, they, some of them were original based on fact, but even in the factual ones, we added a mythic element. Harvey Milk, uh, we made mythic. Uh-huh, okay. And uh, we uh, actually wrote about, used Harvey as a kind of emblem of the gay experience. Okay. And I, I viewed the three acts as the gay experience in contemporary American politics. The first act was called The Closet, and it took place in the 60s when he was a stockbroker uh-huh. uh, in the closet, a Republican stockbroker living in the closet, um, and liberated by Stonewall and realizing that um, if he could stand up for himself as a Jew, he could stand up for himself as a gay. Right. And the second act was called Castro, where, you know, uh, the spirit of... Uh, change took over everybody but um he lost his first election for city council Mm -hmm. um and he realized that if he wanted to uh make change he'd have to repackage himself Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a little bit like my stealth operas a big scene is when he cuts off his hippie ponytail Mm -hmm. and puts on a suit um so that he can be the same harvey milk but package himself differently so that he could win. And the third act is called City Hall, where um, he has fights with Diane Feinstein, who at that time um, was very involved in real estate through her husband. Harvey wanted, you know, to set up senior centers run by youth, uh-huh. and she wanted, she wanted to have development. She actually got Dan White to be her ally. Uh-huh. And... Um, then the Dan White Harvey Milk story took over. It was, uh, you know, it was a wonderful thing to be able to to do that when it was such recent history to of so course. many people. Yeah. When when did Harvey Milk premiere? Um, Harvey Milk must have premiered premiered um, around eighty four. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it wasn't that many years after he died. Right. Um, and uh, many of the people who were in the opera were still alive and I interviewed them. I viewed that as a chance for me to bring my journalistic background and my libretto and theater music background to be all together. I went out and lived in San Francisco for a while. Hmm. I, I spoke to um, a lot of the people that knew and worked with Harvey. His lover, Scott Smith, said, well, I will show you the Harvey Milk archives. And what that was, was a giant overstuffed file cabinet um, that he had to like riffle through. He gave me one of the original three cassette tapes that Harvey Milk made the night before he was assassinated. Wow. Uh, which was, if a bullet goes through my brain, let that bullet open every closet door. 
he had a premonition he would die. Mm -hmm. And the night before he went to um, the opera to see Tosca, mm -hmm. which was the night before he died, he made these tapes, uh, three of them identically, three identical texts, but he spoke them differently. Mm. You could hear how tired he was. Um, and uh, he gave me one. And now I gave it to the Lincoln Central Library. We we wove that into the um, the synth. We made a synth track out of that tape and wove it into the music. I did that with a lot of the interviews. Sure. Some of the characters were composite characters. Mm -hmm. I took two or three and put made them into one. But on opening night uh, in Texas, we invited them all, um, and they were. Wonderful. They were amazed to see each other. Scott mm -hmm. Smith was dying of AIDS, mm -hmm. but he basically hung on to see that premiere. The week later, he died. Wow. And uh, when we did it in San Francisco, they actually did one performance on the anniversary of Milk's death. They did a candlelight march from the Castro to the Opera House where the gay chorus is sang. Then everyone went in, and in all the political scenes were... The political uh, were the city supervisors he had served with. Mm -hmm. We had placed them on stage and given them walk-on roles. Wow. Um, and to me, that's always what that opera was about. It was about the lives we live, about seeing our lives on stage, about making it immediate and real. And I'm not interested in your dumb academic arguments about music. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do whatever I want. We're going to use James Brown. We're going to, you know, we're going to use chords from Tosca. Mm -hmm. Stewart deconstructed a lot of stuff, mixed it in. That's what he loves to do. Mm -hmm. He wasn't formally trained. He was a rock uh, band guy. Mm -hmm. And then he was a cantor. And then he taught himself how to write opera. Wow. And uh, I think his operas are fantastic. Yeah. I think his music is fantastic and inspiring. And that was a great work. I was so glad that it was coming back this year uh, in two productions, both of which got canceled by COVID. Right. Both of them have indicated that they're interested in bringing them back. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully that will happen. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully that will happen. And we did rewrite it. It will be interesting to see now that more time has gone by. Um, and it's not as immediate What's it like to write stories using people who actually lived? And where does imagination and poetic license trump any reverence to the way, uh, to how they actually lived or the, the real circumstances? Well, I think um, almost everything I write is based on people who really lived. Hopper's wife was a mad fantasia where she began as Edward Hopper's wife and ended up as the gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, uh -huh. destroying the paintings she herself had posed for. I did a musical war paint uh, mm -hmm. based on uh, the two um, titans of uh, cosmetics, Elizabeth Arden and Helen, Helena Rubinstein. Right. Um, I'm doing two new shows that I can't talk about. Okay. People have actually commissioned new musicals during this COVID crisis. You know, I've heard this from several people, and this makes me so hopeful, I have to say. I hope so. I hope so. I don't want those theaters turned into warehouses. Nope. Um, we have to figure out a way to get back into them. Yeah, so, and what, I, what it is is that I feel no compunction about changing and fictionalizing. I think that, <laughs> my God, you just have to turn on the television, and what's news is fiction. Mm. Uh, everything that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth is fiction. Um, 
But really what has happened is that television has sped everything up. Uh-huh. While you're still alive, you become a myth, myth of yourself. Yeah. The mythologization of news and fact has all been sped up. And, uh, you know, one month an act can happen. The next month there's a docu thing about it or a, a fictionalized version. And people have learned to accept that and actually want that. Uh-huh. They want to see fictionalized versions. Of, so they have no difficulty with this. The only difficulty you have is legally. Um, right. how far you can go. But as far as audience accept it, you know, Truman Capote started all of this with his uh, nonfiction novel mm-hmm. uh, in cold blood. And uh, ever since then, that's, that's a lot of what we see. Mm. Uh, and sometimes, even if it's highly fictional, I mean, uh, writers used to write uh, Romain Aclay. Is that how you, or is that Aclay or Aclef? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, where basically thinly disguised characters with names changed. Right. These days, you basically write that same thing, but you use the real names. Um, it's true. No, it is. <laughs> uh, but, uh, people are willing to suspend disbelief and watch a, a character in a situation that may or may not have happened. I think I even coined one of the phrases, one of the disclaimers, that's used on some of these librettos when I was back writing Harvey Milk, Uh, an opera based on fact and fiction. I worked that out with lawyers. I had a corrupted section of audio here, but I didn't want to leave this part of the conversation out. While talking about poetic license and writing about real people, we started discussing Grey Gardens, which Michael wrote the lyrics to with Doug Wright in 2006. Here's the majority of that conversation. Big Edie and Little Edie, right. uh, the socialites in decline in the Hamptons. And they were thrilled about it. Well, no, the mother had passed, but Little Edie was still alive when we began that. Albert Maisel's wrote a letter on our behalf to her. These guys want to write a musical about you. And she wrote back. I gave this to Lincoln Central Library, too. Thrilled, thrilled, thrilled about GG, the musical. Um, it must have... Music, dancing, be historical, my beloved mother, P.S., send the big safety pins. I can't buy them in Florida. Um, (laughs) That was the note, Uh, almost verbatim. If you don't believe me, check it out in the recent section. Um, So, uh, and we were all set to meet her because she owned the rights to her words. Sure. And we, uh, as, as, uh, we weren't sure yet how we were going to deal with quotations and that. Um, and we were set to meet her flight out to Florida where she was living, having sold, finally, Great Gardens um, to the uh, editor of the Washington Post mm-hmm. and his wife, Sally Quinn. And then she died. And suddenly her words were no longer owned by her and uh, life rights to her words expired. That's in this country, not necessarily in Europe uh-huh. where the right situation is different. And then we had to make the decision what we're gonna do. And what we decided was Doug Wright decided, you know what, I'm not gonna use her exact quotations. You're gonna use them in the lyrics. Uh-huh. I'm gonna write dialogue that sounds like her, but I'm not gonna make it a quote fest. Um, that worked out well for us yeah. also in, 
that we mixed fiction by reimagining what the house and their life was like in its prime mm -hmm. and inventing a whole situation based on one line I found in a book by one of her cousins, which is that young Edie had dated the older brother of John F. Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, mm. and they might have gotten married had he not been killed in the war. We based the whole concept of the musical on that line. Wow. Um, and came up with a garden party where that engagement was to be announced. Uh -huh. And something went off. Then we re revisit the situation 30 years later when the house had gone into decline and basically they relive it every day of their lives. Right. Um, right. So the first act was like the Philadelphia story. The second act was like no exit. It was all based on fact. It was highly fictionalized, and even though it was based on a documentary. Uh, it, it bore no interest to us to just take the documentary, stick songs in it, and put it on stage. Yes, exactly. It had to be different. Yeah. And the first time we tried it out, it began off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons. The fans showed up. We were a little bit worried about the fans. They showed up dressed as little Edie, and they were angry. I kid you not, they brought baskets of rotten tomatoes to throw at us because oh they felt this was going to be sacrilege. Uh -huh. um, it was the same thing, though, similar to Grapes of Wrath. I just knew what would happen um, if we opened the curtain on a field of dried out crops and people sitting around in the dust chewing on a straw saying, oh, yep, yeah, uh, what are we going to do now? I said, let's not open the Grapes of Wrath in the Dust Bowl. Let's open it in memory in a mm. green field mm -hmm. filled with mist. Mm -hmm. People remembering nobody will, th what, where are we? Um, and then showed them the Dust Bowl. And Grey Gardens opened on this beautiful house right. instead of a room. Mm -hmm. And that no one had seen that before because the movie, which copied us, had not come out yet. And so they were surprised. They didn't throw their tomatoes and they liked it. They got engaged. And by the second act, they loved it. Um, and so we basically had the family's approval. That's the way I love to work, to reinvent it for the stage. Uh -huh. what, what are the stories that opera or for that matter, musical theater should be telling right now? Well, I think we should be telling things about um, our lives that, uh -huh. that affect the audience um, personally. Uh -huh. As I said, I think that we can't do it didactically. We have to do it um, with passion, indirectly, and get in there and then make your impact. Mm -hmm. um, I think we should be telling more, um, using more humor. Yes. Um, uh, I think that uh, knowing how to make humor in music is really understanding how words and music and you, you know you can't just stick a joke in the middle of a line and expect people to hear the rest of the line sung you have to place the operative funny part on the part that lands mm -hmm. give it a moment to breathe them to laugh and keep it going but audiences are so surprised when they get to laugh at opera yes. you know all those uh the peter sellers versions of the mozarts were hilarious. I don't yes. know if anyone remembers them, but the marriage of Figaro, he actually had the chutzpah to set at Trump Tower. I remember. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, it was hilarious. Yeah. People people do like that. Um, I don't think that's changed. We should write stories that make them laugh and make them cry. Uh -huh. um, and hopefully go out um, and want to make some change. 
Right. I mean, I, don't, I do not believe in art for art's sake. Uh -huh. um, we're, we're here for X number of years and things need to be improved. And we all have to work in the mediums that we work. Right. So I totally believe in political content. If you do it right, I totally believe in opening this field up to all the people that can be and should be working in it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think that all of these uh, new programs that we have, uh, operas by women composers that Opera America's were is great. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we, we need some trans operas. We need more African-American operas. I'm working with uh, Tony, who just won... Uh, yeah. Park Five. He's an old friend, um, and I have some other ideas. And I think that um, hopefully that will become a little bit less possessive about what we are allowed to write. Uh -huh. um, I think I got a lot of resistance on mm -hmm. war paint. Uh, it was kind of just starting then when uh, Scott and Doug and I were writing this a feminist musical about two you know, toweringly important business women right. uh, who couldn't break the glass ceiling and didn't get the respect afforded to Henry Ford or the Rockefellers, though their businesses were just as big and they created them from whole cloth. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, I think women were interested by this, but there was something wrong that three men were writing it. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a resistance to it. And uh, I didn't understand that then. I understand it now, uh -huh. but I'm also on the Dramatist Guild Council, and I believe writers should be able to write what they want to write. Mm -hmm. So I would like us to get through this period, have works done, really open it up by everybody, but be a little bit precious about that. You have to be the thing that you're writing about. Michael Corey, thank you so, so much for this. This was a terrific conversation. I really appreciate you're it. welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much to Michael for that full conversation. Next week is a fantastic interview with Jessica Murphy Moo. Not only does she lead libretto writing classes for Seattle Opera, but she has also written works such as An American Dream with Jack Perla and Earth to Kinsey with Francis Pollock. We will talk about all of that and more. But before that, I'll be dropping my second bonus episode midweek about a fascinating multi-company project called the Decameron Coalition. Nine opera companies, ten short pieces, all based on that famous pandemic work, The Decameron. I'll be speaking to librettist Matt Boresi, one of the creators of the coalition, and several other librettists working on different pieces. Don't miss it. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Katora Stickham. This podcast was recorded deep inside my office closet in Knoxville, Tennessee. Special thanks to Early Doucet for the colorful logo, Eileen Downey for the theme music, and my husband for keeping the dog quiet. Thanks for listening, and until the next time, stay safe, wear your mask, and keep telling stories. Mm -hmm.